Hey, over the next few weeks, I'm going to focus uh, out of the uh, book of 1 Peter and just see what God has to say to us. Specifically, I've been drawn to the passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16. Um, and and it, there's a lot in just those two verses, but we're going to uh, unpack that a bit. But first, let me explain a little bit about first, the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter uh, is Peter's first letter written, and it was written somewhere between the year 60 and 68 AD, depending which theologian uh, you listen to. Uh, it's a very warm pastoral letter uh, written to Christians who are being persecuted because of their faith. Uh, and in it, Peter comforts them and he encourages them uh, from a very pastoral heart and perspective. Now, it's, it's a little difficult for us to really grasp and understand the depths of this letter because we have faced very little persecution for our faith. Now, I know uh, if you're a Christian and you, and you perceive the persecution around you and some of the pushback and comparatively to maybe other times in your life, it feels like it's intense, um, not minimizing that, but compared to what the Christian church was facing at this time when Peter wrote this, uh, we, we, we are facing very, very little. We're fortunate to live in a free country. When Peter wrote this, uh, Nero was the emperor, uh, which was the ruler of Rome. His rule began in the year 54 when he was 17 years old. Let that sink in for a minute. The largest uh, empire in the world being ruled by a 17-year-old. I love 17-year-olds, but I don't think they should rule the world. Um, so, he's at 17 years old, he, in the year 54, he... Uh, he he became, began to rule, and he ruled till the year 68 A.D. when he was 30. He died at 30. Uh, and he's infamous for his persecution of Christians, especially after the fire in 64 A.D. that burned Rome, which most people believe he himself started because he wanted to rebuild Rome to look differently, but it backfired on him, so he blamed the Christians. Um, now, Christians were already thought to be strange in Rome, okay? Because they worshipped a dead prophet, Jesus. They believed in only one God. That's where the term atheist came from. Uh, believe it or not, they were called atheists because they didn't believe in the whole pantheon or Greek myth, uh, Roman mythology. They believed in one God, which was strange. And then their ceremonies revolved around broken bodies and spilled blood. We, we call that communion. And so this was very strange to the Romans, and they just thought Christians were strange. So it, uh, when Nero blamed the Christians because of the fire, they were easy scapegoats because society already thought them a little odd. Um, so him blaming the, the fire on the Christians even uh, opened up the floodgates for persecution. And historians uh, record Nero's sick treatment of Christian people. Some of those things including rolling them in pitch and using them as flaming torches for his garden. Uh, another thing is sewing them up in the skins of animals and then sicking the dogs on them and watching them being ripped apart in front of crowds. This is how, some of the things in the persecution that Christians were facing. So how many know what we're facing currently is nothing compared to Christians then, right? Uh, it's pretty intense stuff. But it's I tell you this because it's in this context that Peter writes this letter. 
So a perspective and an understanding as he's writing this that these are the things that are going on in different degrees around the empire. Uh, Nero was in Rome and he unleashed great persecution there. Other parts of the empire, there may have been less. Um, but overall, this is who, uh, what was going on when he writes <clears throat> this letter. And so with that in mind, let's read chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Peter writes this, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now, there's a lot here, and I'm going to, next week, we'll talk about a little bit more that's in here, but today, I'm going to focus on the hope that Peter is referencing in these two verses. He, in this period of uh, scripture, he's not saying, hey, uh, have hope. He's not trying to infuse hope into them. He's referencing the hope they already have. He says, right, he says, uh, this hope that you have, be ready to give an account, a, a, a well-reasoned argument to explain why you're hopeful in the midst of this craziness. In the middle of this persecution, they have this hope. A hope in what? A hope in what? Well, he explains uh, this hope in the very beginning of his letter in 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's read verses 3 through 5. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he talks about this new birth a new creation, which Paul writes about, into a living hope. This hope that's alive. It's a living hope that's here today and as well as for the future as, uh, as well. And this is possible through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He goes on. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Now, we understand the concept of inheritance, something left uh, for us or to us. And in this world, uh, many times our inheritance can spoil, get stolen, rot or decay. If you've been given a house as an inheritance, guess what? Uh, it's possible that that house over time is going to need maintenance. It's going it's to incur damage. It's not going to be held in pristine shape. If it's money, we know that the value of that money can go up or down, and so on and so forth. He said, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So, what's he talking about in this hope? He said, this hope involves a new birth into a, a living hope. And that, the hope is Jesus Christ, right? That's the living hope. And this hope is made possible because Jesus is alive. He was raised from the dead. Not only in this, that uh, you have this uh, salvation through Christ, but you have an inheritance that's kept in heaven for you, which is our salvation and the reward and 
living with Christ. We, we could talk uh, about this from the book of Revelation and where there'll be no more sin and no more evil and no more pain and no more suffering. And this is part of that inheritance, this promise from God. That this is the hope he's talking about. Now it seems to me that the world that we live in, whether they're Christian or not, there's a lot of people who are living without hope. Right? You may observe it, you may feel it. You may not have hope here today. And so what's Peter's response to this? What's his encouragement? He says this in verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So what is he saying? He's saying put your hope in the fact that when Jesus comes, grace is going to be given to you and you're going to have access to heaven, an eternal inheritance. That that's where we should put our hope in, that our hope is in Christ. Now, Peter says, choose to focus on your new life in Christ and the eternal inheritance you're about to receive, and it's there that you're going to find your hope. Amen. Now, here's the rub for me as I thought through this. Like, as Christians, we understand this intellectually. We know this. We know this in our minds. We've been taught this. It's partially probably the reason you, if you're here today and you've given your life to Christ, you came to Christ because of this, this living hope, this salvation and eternal promise and inheritance. The problem is yet many of us still live without hope. Why is this? Or, or we demonstrate that we don't have hope by our words and our actions. I'll give you some examples. When, when our favorite political candidate loses an election, we tend to have no hope. When we're asked to wear a mask, the stuff that comes out of our mouth, when a prayer seems to go unanswered, what's your response? I've watched many of Christians who their hope just falls apart. Ah, oh, the world's going to whatever, Jesus, whatever, you know, and, and all of a sudden now we're placing, we're looking in other places other than Jesus Christ because these things that we thought uh, shouldn't be. There's a lot of people living without hope. Even though they understand it here, it's not lived out in their lives. And why is this? Why is this in, in a country that it's so free and we really have very little persecution that we have less hope than, than people who are being martyred, who are being burned and ripped apart by dogs and all kinds of things. They had more hope than many of us. Why is this? I believe the answer lies in treasure. Let's look at Matthew chapter 13. Jesus shares two, uh, two parables Matthew chapter, um, sorry, the technology just died, so guys, you may need to, all right, all of a sudden, my whole screen just went blank, I was like, yes, I don't think those are coincidences either, Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46, Jesus shares two parables, they're very quick, uh, but they illustrate something. He says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, 
When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. The second is just like it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. What, is it, what are both of these parables saying to us? That both individuals in these stories uh, sold everything they had to obtain what they had found. And so it's this idea that what they found they, they realized was of greater value than anything else they already had. This treasure, this is treasure. This is, I must liquidate everything I have to obtain this. That was their heart. And they did it with joy. I mean, if you and I found treasure, we would probably have joy too, right? If I was, if I was in this abandoned field and walking around, I, I tripped over this wooden chest and I opened it up and there was gold bullion overflowing in it and that there was a for sale sign on the property, you better believe I'd sell my house and my car and everything I had to obtain that field to get that treasure, right? And I would do it joyfully. Now, let's compare that to another story Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 22. He's talking to a young man who comes and asks him about eternal life. And he says, why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, the young man requires, inquires. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I've kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. So you see the contrast here. Let's pause here for a minute. This guy says, hey, he's a a young man of great wealth. He has possession. He approaches Jesus. How do I have eternal life? How do I have this, this living hope, this life that you talk about? Do all the commandments. I've done all that. What next? Sell everything. Sell your treasure. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Contrast that from the, from the merchant or the person who was willing to liquidate everything and obtain that with joy with the person who had great wealth but didn't want to enter into the kingdom because they wanted their wealth. They wanted to hold on to what they already had. What's the difference? The difference is that the first uh, parable, they saw the kingdom of heaven as treasure, something of great value. The second person saw his wealth and his accumulation of goods as greater treasure than the kingdom of heaven because he was unwilling to let it go to obtain that. And that's true for all of us, not just when it comes to spiritual principles, it's life principles. How you spend your time how you spend your money, how you spend your energy, you spend it on the things that are most important to you. And so this 
gentleman was unwilling because he demonstrated that his wealth and his possessions was of greater value to him than the kingdom of God. Because he was unwilling to trade one for the other. I got to tell you, if I'm, if I'm driving around on a, on a motor scooter and somebody comes to me and offers me a brand new car and says, listen, I'll give you this car, but you got to get rid of the motor scooter. I'm going to get rid of the motor scooter, right? Because that car has greater value to me than the motor scooter. But if I'm driving around in a, in a nice new car and somebody offers me a motor scooter, nah, I'm not giving up my car for that motor scooter. And that's the situation here. It's the value of treasure. Jesus explains why this is a problem in his parable of the sower. And we're not going to read the entire parable, but he talks about seed that's sown in Matthew chapter uh, 13. And in Matthew chapter 13, in verse 7, he talks, he said, the seed fell among thorns, grew up and choked out the plants. Four kinds of uh, ground that the seed falls in. This is the third kind he talks about. His disciples later say, hey, what does this mean? And in verse 22, he explains it. He says, The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. One of the fruits of the Spirit is joy, peace, right? And so... The deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for the things of this world can choke out the very things and the promises that God has for us because we're trying to hold on to both, which is, was the young man, the young ruler, who was like, hey, I have great earthly possessions and I want eternal life too. God says, well, the eternal life in the kingdom of God needs to have a greater value to you than your earthly possessions and you need to demonstrate that. And he demonstrated which was of greater value to him. Here's the the point here. We cannot straddle the fence of pursuing treasure of this world and heaven at the same time. And so many of us do. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21, Jesus taught this, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And see, I'm going to read verse 24 next. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and and money. And Jesus' teaching here is this, this lack of joy, this, this robbing of the living hope, and all of these things is because the young ruler wanted to hold on to what he had on this earth, but he wanted the kingdom of heaven as well. So he's straddling the fence, being pulled in both ways, and he ends up losing out and demonstrating that the worldly possessions for him are more valuable than God's kingdom. Jesus says you can't do that. One, you can't serve both. Being caught in the middle is is terrible. 
When I played uh, tennis in high school, my coach used to yell at me because I used to like to stand in the middle of my side of the court. He's like, Steve, that's no man's land. You're never going to win if you stand in no man's land. You either got to stand at the back line or all the way up the net, but don't get caught in no man's land. And can I tell you, when you're between uh, the things of this world and you're between the kingdom of God, when you're tugging between the two, you're in no man's land. You're going to lose every time. Because you're going to feel guilty about your, your seeking after the pleasures and riches of this world, and then you're going you're, you're to feel guilty for, for not seeking after Christ, and, you, and you're just torn between the two, and you'll have no joy, you'll have no hope. Intellectually, you'll know that Christ should be your hope, but you won't feel it and realize it in your life. Stuck in no man's land. You see, the value we place on God's kingdom, which, let me remind you, his kingdom isn't buildings, his His kingdom isn't structures. His kingdom isn't systems. His kingdom isn't doctrine. His kingdom is the reign and rule of Jesus Christ in your heart and life. That's the kingdom of God. So we don't fight for buildings. We don't fight for denominations. We don't fight for doctrine. Although these things are important. The reign and rule of of God is... Is, is in our heart, that's the kingdom of God. When we, when we say, yes, Lord, I'm, I want you to reign and rule in my life, that's the kingdom of God. When we value and place his reign and rule in our life, uh, it will affect our hope, whether that's of value to you or not of value to you. So what's the solution? Back to First Peter in chapter 3, Verse 15, he says this, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. What is a Lord? It's another phrase that we are very unfamiliar with uh, in, our, in our day and age. A Lord is a person having power and authority over others. You've seen the, you've seen the old movies... Right, my, my, my wife right now is addicted to an Amazon Prime show, Victoria, about the Queen of England. And she's like the sovereign. And what if she says, goes? She says, this is what we're doing. And her advisors say, well, I don't know if that's a great idea. She's like, I don't care what you think. This is what we're doing. And they say, yes, your majesty. Right? And we chuckle and we laugh and we're like, oh, look at that. That was a historical. She's a lord. She has power and authority over others. So Peter is saying, revere Christ as Lord in your life. Does God have power and authority over you? Or do you take what God says and you weigh it? Hmm. Let me see, Lord, how that fits in my life. I might, Lord, if it, if it fits and feels like it works out. You know what, Lord, that's... Culturally, that's not acceptable, so I don't think I can follow that part. When Christ is Lord in our life, he has power and authority over us. And when we set our hope, we set our hope by making Jesus Christ Lord over our lives. We choose Christ over all. He becomes our treasure. His leading in our life his power in our life, his authority in our life, his way of doing things in our life become primary. 
He leads and directs our life. Everything else we hold loosely. It doesn't mean that the other things are evil or bad or any of those kinds of things. They're just held loosely compared to his reign and rule in our lives. By making him Lord, we're trusting in his ability to lead us to the promise, to lead us to the inheritance. And we're trusting him regardless of what's going on around us. Which is what the first church was saying. Like, we trust that in Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. He's not just our Savior. There's a difference. You see, you can, you can receive him as your Savior. You can say, Lord, I believe you're my Savior. You died for my sins, and because of your sacrifice, I'm going to heaven and praise you, Jesus. Thank you for being my Savior. Being his, him being your Lord is a separate matter. You're giving him permission, power, and authority in your life to lead you and direct you as he sees fit. That, that his teachings and his word and, and where he's leading you is the primary influence in your life over everything else. When there's a conflict, God wins. Not your ideas, not your society, not your culture, not your family. You say, no, Christ is my Lord, and he says I need to do this, and therefore I do this. You see, when we do that, we have a confident expectation that regardless of what's happening around us, God is leading me and guiding me towards his promises. And you know what a confident expectation is? That's, that's the definition of hope. Hope is a confident expectation. Right? I mean, John and Isabel hope to get married this Saturday. It's a pretty confident expectation, right? It's pretty much going to happen, right? There, there's no, they're not turning back. They're not married yet. But they're pretty confident that on Saturday it's going to be a done deal. So right now they have hope towards being married. If there's no confident expectation, there's no hope. So confidence has to do with trust. And what do we trust in this world? Why are people living without hope? Because the people they've put their trust in, the systems they've put their trust in, the material wealth they've put their trust in, the careers they've put their trust in, the families they've put their trust in, Many of those things have been found to be shaky and not trustworthy. So now there's no confidence in the expectation. So we're hopeless. That's why Jesus Christ is our hope. And that's why people, when they're walking through the darkest valleys, when they're walking through the most horrific uh, persecution, they can say, my hope is not in these people delivering me. My hope is in Jesus Christ who's leading me to his promise. And it doesn't matter what happens to me right now. It doesn't matter if I'm being afflicted on every side. It doesn't matter if I'm rich or if I'm poor, if I'm weak or if I'm strong, or if I'm pretty or I'm ugly or I'm fat or I'm thin. It doesn't, none of these things matter. Because it's God, 
Jesus Christ, who is leading me to his promise and the inheritance that's kept for me in heaven. And so if I'm walking through this, I trust that he will either see me through, or if this ends in death, guess what? I get there quicker. (laughs) So it's all good. There's hope no matter what I'm going through. So therefore, I can walk through hard things. I can walk through difficult times. And then when people look around and say, why are you so hopeful? This is terrible. Ah, be ready to explain now. As I wrap this up this morning, can I ask you this, this morning to evaluate where's your treasure? What are the, where are the things that you're hoping in for this world? That you're placing your confidence in and your expectation that's going to get you where you think you need to be. Even if, that, even if what you think you need to be is biblically, what are you trusting that's going to get you there? Is it that you're going to be, you know, you're going to get an education and that education is going to get you there? Is it your family? Is it your, is it your job? Is it material resources? Is, what is it? Where's your treasure? Do you find yourself like the rich young ruler? You really recognize that Jesus Christ is the way to eternal life and you want that. How do I get that? But you're still... I'm holding on to the things that this world has to offer because I like that. You know, I just, I've worked hard for that. And God's saying, no, 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 you can, it's, it's that, I, I, I watch sometimes um, on Instagram, it's not an advertisement, but there's a site, I won't say their name, that they, people post funny things that happen in boating, boating accidents and stupid people and whatnot. And inevitably, there's always these things where this guy's standing on the end of his boat and he's trying to grab the dock and the boat's drifting this way and he's trying, and next thing you know, he's like, and he just, in the water, right? I think that's us sometimes. We're trying to hold on to the things of this world and like, oh, my reputation, my career, my, God, you've given me a nice house and my family and my car and I don't really want to give that. And we're stretched, we're stretched, and we fall in the water and they're all like, God, how did you let me drown and fall in the water? And God's like, you should have let go. It's a funny example, but it illustrates the tension of why we're living without hope. We're in that middle, scared to death. And in that moment of being scared to death, There's no hope. And God is inviting you today to make him Lord of your life. Which isn't just a title with a fancy nuance. When God is made Lord, you're giving him access to rule and reign over you. He has power and authority to tell you where to go, when to go, what to do, what not to do regardless of what the people around you tell you, regardless of what society tells you, regardless of what your employer tells you. Now, we're going to get into this next week, but there's a part that's like, hey, with gentleness and respect, live this way.
Is, is God's reign and rule in your life? Is Jesus Christ being Lord of value to you? Is it treasure? Or is it just another thing to add to the long lists of uh, things you have in your life? It's just one of the many. If you want to live with the hope that Peter writes about, Christ needs to be Lord of your life. And until he is Lord of your life, uh, you'll find your life vacillating between joy, sorrow, hope, hopelessness, as, as you put your trust and confidence in things uh, that are on shaky ground. God has invited you and me to, to have a living hope, to have a hope that the rest of the world doesn't understand. And it only comes when Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. The choice is yours. It's not an emotional plea. I'm not trying to twist your arm to get you to say yes to Jesus. It's, it's, it's a simple equation. The hope you're looking for is found when Christ is Lord of your life. You take it or leave it. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning that you sent your Son to this earth to redeem it, to, to love us, to woo us, to, to save us. And we are very grateful for his body broken and his blood spilled that we could be saved and, and look forward to an eternal inheritance. But this morning, we, we take another step and, and say, Jesus isn't only our Savior, but we desire to make him our Lord. And so, Jesus, we give you permission this morning to be Lord of our lives. That you have power and authority over us to, to, to send us, to, to tell us to go, to tell us to stay, to tell us to, to, uh, what to say, what not to say, where to work, where not to work, where should we live, where shouldn't we live. And Lord, as we follow you, as you become Lord, we know we're going to face resistance in the world around us, whether that be from our families or our workplace or our, or our community where we live. But Lord, we announce today that our hope is in you when you're Lord of our lives. So we invite you, Lord, to be Lord. Not just a title, but an actuality. The Holy Spirit, we ask when we, when we step outside of that and we begin to distance ourselves from Jesus being Lord. We, we give you permission to remind us and to encourage us to get back with Christ as our Lord. When, when, when Christ being our Lord becomes tough and difficult and we face persecution because of it or, or unknown things or things that are fearful or terrible, we ask you to help us, Lord, stay underneath your power and your authority. We thank you for the confident expectation that you give us, this hope, not only in the here and now, but in the days to come, our future, that we can live as people different from the world around us. Lord, I pray as we leave this place today that your spirit and your presence would go with us, that you'd continually encourage us and challenge us and, and draw us closer to you. 
Holy Spirit, empower us to, to be a light for you in the places that we live, work, and play. We thank you and we bless you in your holy name. Amen. Amen, church. God bless you. It was great seeing you today. Uh, please hang around and, and fellowship. There's coffee and some snacks in the back. Um, otherwise, we'll, we'll see you next week. God bless. Take care.